This episode is sponsored by this Naked Mind companion app. Wait, this Naked Mind has an app? Yes, we do. And I am so excited to tell you about it. This Naked Mind companion app is our brand new app where we've included all-in-one access to over 700 videos with answers to all your burning questions, our signature 30-day alcohol experiment, our incredible global community, and so much more, all in one convenient place. It's private, off social media, and free. This Naked Mind companion app is available in the App Store, on Google Play, and online at thisnakedmindapp.com. Sometimes I record a podcast that I'm asked to be on someone else's podcast, and the conversation is just too amazing not to share. So I asked for permission to share it here. Now, this is me being interviewed by Wyatt and Mary, and it is one of the coolest conversations I've had in a long time. So I hope you enjoy it. This, this right here, <laughs> this is so major. You know what? Major. I don't think they can handle this. Woo! And I don't think you're ready for this jelly. I don't think you're ready for this Annie. Oh, my God. Wow, honey. Do yes. you like that? Do you like where I went? I think this is the best episode of our podcast yet. Holy shit. I would put this in the top three. Yeah, I agree. I mean, this is, well, I guess we're recording it right now. So I guess yes. we're like, we are creating that fantasy as I'm yes. talking. But we have a treat for Manic Episodes listeners today. This is a big deal. We have Queen Annie Grace on the podcast today of This Naked Mind. I cannot even say enough how wonderful this conversation with her was, how brilliant she is, and how many lives she's changed. I mean, she certainly changed mine. Seriously. And I think, too, like, by proxy, you know, me, I... It's not something that I like, have talked a ton about publicly, but I, you know, it's been almost a year since I've had a drink. Yes. And, like, for no reason that I haven't shared it. It's just, to me, it's so, it feels so insignificant. Yeah. Because it just is, it, it just fits so easily in my life, and it's something I don't think about. I it's think, so natural. Yeah, and I think what I really enjoyed about our conversation that y'all will hear is I think there's a lot of parallels between diet culture and, you know, this real shame about drinking. Yes. That, like there, it's very interesting. I yeah. think that, you know, the places that people end up, but just realizing, Hey, like just give yourself some like compassion for your experience. And like the, like shame isn't going to help solve anything absolutely not yeah i agree there's lots of really interesting ways that the experiences that y'all talked about kind of mapped onto each other Mm. and i was just telling you as we were making dinner it's unbelievable to me that i'm at this point in my life where you know somebody whose work was as meaningful to me as annie grace i mean she provided me with the resources that i needed to quit drinking Mm -hmm. um she like single-handedly Together with her work, <laughs> she and I, she didn't know it, but um, we're like, I was creating a support system based on her work that enabled mm-hmm. me to stop drinking. And the fact that, you know, it's it's Mary's connections and Mary's career that have enabled these kinds of connections. And yet it's not just because like Mary is well known or, or, you know, has been nominated for awards and has been on TV. It's not because of your level of fame it's because of the kind of work you do that mm. people who do similar good in the world are attracted to you mm. and want to connect with you. Mm. And this was just such a wonderful conversation. And I feel like I learned something new about myself and about us and the world every time I interact with her. So it was really neat. And I think she's learning from you too. 
I th- it's mutual. I yeah. think I really, you know, not only just like appreciate her message and where she comes from, but also what she has been able to do with her platform and like with what she makes and the way she does it. You know, I think it's difficult to, <laughs> it's just very easy to make money doing shitty things. Like <laughs> yeah. it's really, really easy to do that. And I think that it is really powerful to turn something that you love that has been fulfilling for you and helped so many people into something that is sustaining. Yeah. I think that's really, I think that's really amazing. That's what we call in the biz being aligned, right? Yeah. Like what you're doing is really aligned with your values and your purpose. And yeah. Oh, I just feel activated since that conversation with Me her. Me too. Just, just like I'm sizzling like a snare, as yeah. Lana Del Rey would say. <laughs> um, Annie Grace is the author of This Naked Mind, Control Alcohol, Find Freedom, Discover Happiness, and Change Your Life, and The Alcohol Experiment, a 30-day alcohol-free challenge to interrupt your habits and help you take control. She grew up outside Aspen, Colorado, in a one-room log cabin without running water electricity. Having discovered a passion for marketing, Annie Grace earned a Master's of Science in Marketing and dove into corporate life. At As the youngest vice president in a multinational company at the age of 26, her drinking career began in earnest. At 35, in a global C-level marketing role, she was responsible for marketing in 28 countries. She was drinking almost two bottles of wine a night. Knowing she needed a change, but unwilling to submit to a life of deprivation and stigma, Annie Grace embarked on a journey to painlessly gain control of alcohol. For her, that process resulted in no longer wanting to drink. Never happier, she left her executive role to write and share this naked mind with the world. In her free time, she loves to ski, travel, 26 countries and counting, and enjoy her beautiful family. Annie Grace lives with her husband and three children in the Colorado mountains. I can't wait for this. <laughs> Let's go. I honestly, hi, I can't believe she's here. Annie, Queen, Queen Annie. Queen Annie, as you are referred to in our house. <laughs> Thank you so much for being here, Annie. Oh my gosh, you guys are making me blush. This is the best. I've been excited about this all day. I actually had a podcast earlier today. I will tell you who offline, very famous person. And I was like, that sucked. And I'm so excited to talk to my <laughs> Mary. Okay, I can't wait. Actually, I podcast know. canceled. We're going to get offline so I can hear this. Yes. Um, but yeah, I was telling Annie before we started recording, um, to call our podcast a dog and pony show, especially compared to Annie's, we were guests on Annie's podcast way back in January of 2020. Oh my God, we had just started. In the before times. Yeah. Yeah, pre-pandemic. And Annie, you're up to almost 500 episodes of that podcast now. Yes, yes. And we just we just hit 14 million downloads, which is awesome. It's like oh, the so coolest awesome. thing. I'm like, oh, what is happening? This is nuts. So, oh my so God. Exciting. Congratulations. We're probably only, I would say about like 12 or 14 years behind you. So <laughs> watch out for that. Um, just consistency. That's all that happens. Just consistency. <laughs> <laughs> so much has happened since then. My goodness. Yeah. You have launched the path. First of all, I don't think, I think that was maybe in the works when we talked to you on your podcast, but now it's like up and running. Like I'm looking in your background behind you. I mean, we are on the oh, yeah. 
And Mary's on the path now. I'm on the path. (laughs) What? No way. I quit drinking in June. So it'll almost be a year. Congratulations, Mary. I had no idea. Thank you. It's like one of those things I don't even think about, you know? And I think that that's like the hope, you know, is that it doesn't consume so much of your life that you're agonizing over it, you know? Yeah. Right. Like get rid of the, all the mental real estate that was taken up by, you know, that cycle and yeah, everything opens up. It's just awesome. Even if you're not a big drinker, I mean, it's still a lot of mental real estate. And a lot of time spent feeling really crappy. I, I think yeah. that's the the thing that really spurred a lot of Mary's decision on was in June and it was my birthday party. And of course, because of this naked mind and because of your approach to renegotiating my relationship with alcohol it was I was like of course have people over drink I don't care it doesn't bother me a bit it's not triggering for me bring all the booze you want so Mary was like I think I'm gonna drink tonight I think I'm gonna get drunk tonight actually tonight I'm gonna get and I got just got bottles of wine and liquor (laughs) I was like so I was like setting it up and then like I didn't think I had an MRI the next day for my back I I mean I can't think of a worse hangover activity than getting an MRI machine it, and I you're cannot like, tell you, you said it was hot in the room. Too. Yeah, I was like sweating. It was hot. I had the, he gave me a blanket because I thought for some reason I was going to be cold, <laughs> but I was so nauseous. I woke up at like five a.m. and it had been vomiting, and it was one of those feelings where when I retraced my night, I was like, okay, and at that point it gets a little fuzzy, and I also have this feeling of, well, I have to keep going because I'm having so much fun. I don't want the fun to stop. <laughs> mm-hmm. Everything that you know that Annie talks about, that you talk about, where I was like, oh, the fun that I'm having isn't because of the alcohol, but there is something that happens to me where I'm just like, I can't. I have to have more. And that doesn't really add up with what I know to be true about like myself and about like our family and friends where I was like, maybe this isn't serving me. Maybe I could just like try to see what happens if I don't drink. (laughs) Because I really also didn't like that feeling of not remembering what had happened. And it was your birthday and there was like so much fun stuff. And I just felt like, oh, I really wanted to remember all of that. Right. So that was, yeah, that was kind of my moment. Well, that's awesome. Yeah, I, that was a big one for me was just looking at all the places where I didn't remember anymore. I mean, my son's third birthday, like I have pictures. I, I cannot recall that day. And it was a middle of the day party. So I know, Mary, we're not talking the same language all, all the way, but it for <laughs> sure was like a middle of the day party. And I don't remember it. And yeah, it's just a bummer. It's just, it's just a bummer. Like what is life without our memories, right? Right, totally. Like you've said in your book, it's an erasure of yourself. It's a slow act of invalidating and erasing and quieting these parts of yourself that, I mean, I've d- discovered parts of myself that I, I wasn't, I didn't even know were there. I mean, at my own resilience, my ability to deal with with stress and anxiety and disappointment and my goodness. And so Mary's not on the official path. That's an incredible, it's a coached program that you do, right? Like it, it involves your wonderful coaches. Like Scott, where do you find these wonderful earth angels? Scott was a podcast guest. He was just a podcast guest. And um, it was so cool because he had read my book and he just kind of hung his own shingle and he was doing the thing. And I was like, wow, I talked to a lot of people who talk about doing the thing, but you're you're really doing the thing. I was like, can I see your website? And he sent me, a, I'm like, oh no, like you have a website. Like you're actually, you're actually doing the thing. And I was so impressed with that. And I was like, okay, I cannot afford 
you now, (laughs) but someday we are going to work together. And so we just kind of kept in touch and figured it out over the years. Um, He was a sound engineer and yeah, it was awesome. And then, yeah, it's just kind of gone from there. And it's, yeah, it's just the coolest thing for people to be able to pay it forward in that way. And a lot of people have been able to quit their jobs, the coaches. We have a lawyer who's, you know, now doing better doing this than she was in her legal work. And there's some resistance from people like, oh, well, it should be free. And I agree. So much of what I do, like the alcohol experiment is free, always will be free. But also therapy's not free. Doctors aren't free, you know? So I think these coaches need to be paid and they show up for you every day. Cool. And I have about a million billion questions that I have written down for, for you. And I'm <laughs> going to try to be judicious about them so that I'm not taking up awesome. your entire week. Rapid fire. No. Yeah. <laughs> Rapid fire. Um, but one thing that I'm, I'm wondering about is your kind of experience being in this role that you're in because this naked mind was published in like 2015 right right and so you've been you've been at this for a while i know that you and mary are in such different fields and you are addressing such kind of different aspects of the human experience and different you know struggles with being a person in this world uh with all the different you know all all the different pressures and pitfalls there are but you both have a similar experience i think of people constantly telling you that you have saved their lives, that you have Mm -hmm. changed their lives, that you have made their world a better place. And I know that Mary at times has really struggled with that, that that kind of creates, I guess you'd call it maybe just kind of a lot of, a lot of pressure on you for one thing. Yeah. And I think it's also difficult to not create like a sort of savior complex, you know, like if you're not grounded, you can really take ownership of people's healing. (laughs) Wow. And then I guess probably feel devastated if something happens, right? What is it like for you hearing people express that sentiment? And does how how do you sort of negotiate that? Oh, gosh, I have so much to say about this. So maybe I'm not going to be the judicious one. But I think that, you know, specifically on this topic, it's, it's just so important, especially for you, Mary, that you hear some of this stuff. When I first got into this, it was so heavy. It was so heavy. And every email that I'd get, and I get 10,000 emails a month now, but at that time, you know, it was a few thousand a month and it was 90% of them or more were thank yous. And even the thank yous, I couldn't read with lightness. Even the thank yous, like you're saying, I took on with, well, well, what happens when the other shoe drops? Well, what if this doesn't work forever? And I, I took on ownership, like savior complex, ownership of their outcomes. And I had a friend say to me once, he said, you know, what you're doing is you've just built a boat. If people want to get in the boat, they can get in the boat. If they don't want to get in the boat, they don't get in the boat. But once they rent the boat, they're on the lake themselves. <laughs> like, you just made the boat. And, and I was like, okay, that's an interesting way to think about it. And, you know, I got some of my own coaching and I got some of my own, like just talking to people who had been there before. And one of the things I realized, and I talk about this, um, it's actually going to be one of the things that I, I come out with when I eventually put together my new book, which is going to be called Living Naked and years away. So don't, don't anybody get too excited, but like <laughs> I... One of the things about this is this idea, and I love to phrase it this way, of animating energy. So if you think of animation, like what creates life? Like animation takes a a drawing and it makes it um, alive, right? Or if we're inanimate, we're dead. And if we're animated, we're, we're alive. So it's like what creates life? What creates momentum? And there's so many incredible scientific studies that say 70% of your energy actually comes from your emotions, And you might be like, well, what? But then if you think about it, well, when you are full of anticipation and hope, 
gosh, you have a lot of energy. Like my kids can't sleep the night before Christmas, right? Or if you're full of anxiety, you're wasting all of your energy worrying about the future and you're totally paralyzed. You can't do anything. And so I'm thinking, okay, well, and I've heard it said before, energy is the most important thing. It's all about energy. Like if we have enough energy and I'm like, but it isn't, it's all about the quality of the energy. And so what I was able to see is that when I was bringing that heaviness into my work, I was actually creating a function of me burning out. And they talk about burnout in a way that isn't that you do too much or you're too busy. It's that you do too much of things that feel heavy. You do too much of things that feel, you know, tight. And so I started to, I was like, okay, I don't know how to change this. And I know it's going to be like everything is a multi-year process with a lot of different steps, but I have to switch what I'm running on because I was running on fear and I was running on scarcity and I was running on anger and I was running on, you know, the savior complex and trying to fix everybody else's problems. And over the time, I've been able to really shift that. And it has been a huge journey, but when you can run on things like, gratefulness and lightness and playfulness and hope, all of those things, the beautiful thing, if you think about energy, like think about fuel, the first kind of energies, those scarcity, fear, significance, they're, they're, I, I think of them like fossil fuels. We actually have a value at my company. I say, don't burn a dead dinosaur <laughs> because it's like, those are fossil fuels. And the cost internally is brutal. They are corrosive. They are explosive you end up snapping at the people you love when you're running on those fuels, right? And for me, running on those fuels cost me two bottles of wine every single day. And then if you move to kind of these renewable energies, this hope, this gratitude, like hope creates more hope, love creates more love, passion creates more passion, excitement creates more excitement. It was all about just learning to hold it lightly. And one of the key phrases that I have just repeated to myself so much is that I am invited, but not required. Mm. And yeah, this is my, I, this is going to happen with or without me. The world's going to wake up. We're going to change our collective opinion about something that's putting way too many of us in the grave. Um, it's going to happen with or without me. I'm not needed. And that for me was so freeing. Like I'm, I'm invited. I get to do this work, but I'm not required. I don't have to. And it allowed me to really look at it in, in such a lighter way. Yes, that's reminding me of one of my favorite Beatles lyrics. It was George Harrison. I think George Harrison was such an underrated songwriter. But anyway, there's that Beatles song, Within You, Without You, where he says, realize that you're only very small and life flows on within you and without you. And I think there's something really beautiful about that. And I wonder if maybe, I think in both of your work, sort of like you're channeling something that you sort of discover. It, it's it's not an invention so much as a channel, no, right? Yeah, not the originator, right? Yeah. Yes. That I, the translator or exactly. yeah, the conduit. Yeah. yeah. If I get, I want to be a, like a vessel for goodness, you know, yeah. I, I feel like sometimes that can sound crass of like, I don't have, <laughs> I'm just a beam of light, you know, but, <laughs> but you are, I really do feel like there is this desire to feel very self-important when people, they want to put it on you because I think it is, it's very uncomfortable for people to feel like they've done something great, like, or they've done something like (laughs) that is like 
good good for themselves, you know, and that right. it's easier to attribute it to somebody else. You know, if I've been a catalyst for someone else's healing or change, and oh my God, that's that's great. But their healing is their responsibility. And so that switch for me was really important too. And I felt so much lighter and freer once I kind of let go of this idea that I was supposed to be responsible for everyone's yeah. growth and healing because that's a lot to carry. Yes. When people first started saying that to me, it made me feel so uncomfortable. I'd be like, no, you saved you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was just like, and and then I, I think I realized what, what Mary knows is that actually that posture of gratitude, like they want that. They want that sort of hero or, and, and it is a gift to them for you to accept their gratitude. And I was just quite terrible at it in the beginning, um, but getting better. And yeah, I think it's so true. I wanted to ask you too, because we were both, I mean, we were watching you. I say, I say this like, yeah, it's y'all are both on pedestals and I'm actively putting Annie on a pedestal. I know I'm, I'm doing the thing that, that I am, I'm, that we're wary of, but that uh, we were both sitting here as if we were watching our favorite band or something. So excited for you when you were on Red Table Talk back in July. Oh, and one w- one thing that really struck me is is how I, I I was like, oh, I haven't I haven't seen Annie really be that vulnerable before. And I'm wondering what that what what that was like for you. Like if that was if that sort of vulnerability comes easily for you or if it was just sort of in that situation. But or I guess I kind of just want to know your relationship with being vulnerable about your own experience. Yeah, it's it's really interesting. I think that I can put myself back there. I think it's actually easier for me now that I am healed in a deeper way. I think it was really hard because you know that feeling and I'm sure we've all experienced this of, oh my gosh, if I shed a tear, like I'm never going to stop. Like I'm going to cry a river and it's going to take me away and there's going to be no end to like, there's not enough tears because, and so I have to, I have to keep it all in. And so I actually think that what you've seen, and I, I come to tears actually really frequently. I've noticed it in podcasts, not when you guys were on, but again, I think my healing journey was in process as it always is. But when I've allowed those emotions to kind of be expressed regularly. And and honestly, I've been taking a book out of my daughter's life because, man, that girl, she will get so mad and she will throw the biggest temper tantrum. She will yell and she will scream and she's and then and then it's gone. And I was like, wow, look at that. And I have had to catch myself saying, well, don't cry. Like, it's OK. Like, don't worry. And I'm like, no, no, no. Like, you go. You cry. Like, yeah, you you feel upset about whatever you know, the fact your brother didn't let you take a sip of his whatever, like yeah. all the silliness, right? It, it for, for her is really real. And she is healthier and happier when she lets it out. And so I actually started to do things where I was like, okay, well, how can I just create a space for me to let it out? And, you know, silly things like, okay, I'm just going to watch a sad movie by myself. One that I know is just going to let me and just, just be there for it. Just be there for the emotion. And then I think it's so much easier for you to connect with empathy to where people were because you're not, you don't have a block against it because you're not afraid. I'm not afraid anymore. If we get emotional together, we talk about something that's intense. Yeah. I'm going to tear up and I'm not going to like be carried away in the like ugly sobbing for the next hour and a half, like was happening for so long. Oh, you are, you're speaking Mary's language of of, of (laughs) loving tears, but there, yeah, there's some, there's a feeling when somebody is like, Oh, don't cry. It's yeah. almost like a, 
even as an adult, there's this yeah. feeling of like, oh, is this not something worth crying over? Right. I like that you honor like your daughter's need to cry. Like yeah. that's just such a normal, natural. That's good. I'm and I and I agree. Sort of like intentionally when I'm like, you know what? I'm gonna watch like dodo videos of like pets being reunited with their owners until like, what do I feel like today? <laughs> Happy tears, delighted to animal tears, or do I feel like just straight up sad tears? Grief tears. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I think it's 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 so important because what I was really examining like why am I telling her not to cry for my own comfort? Mm-hmm. Like it's not a service to her. Right. All it's teaching her is how to bottle that all up, right? But it's for my own comfort because yeah. I'm like, oh, you know, I don't want her to be upset because then right. you know, and so I had to actually become a better version of myself to allow her to just be herself. Yeah, part of it for me too is my. My stepmom, she was in the military for a long time, and I've always been a big crybaby, like everything. And when she came into our lives, I would start crying about something, and she'd get really upset. And it was like, don't cry. You need to stop crying because you really saw it as a sign of like weakness. And like you're letting people know that they hurt you. And that is – like that's bad. You can't let people know that they hurt you or else they're going to hurt you more. You know, right. Don't give them the satisfaction. Right? Yeah. And they were just visiting. I, I did. I was on say yes to the dress. So they were they were part of my entourage and they were visiting. And and my stepmom took me aside and she goes, I just want you to know, I am really sorry for how frequently I told you to not cry. And, you know, in retrospect, I was uncomfortable with crying mm. and mm. your, you know, your ability to be comfortable with it and your the way you process emotions has been really inspiring for me. And yeah. I feel like I'm more comfortable now with crying. I was like, oh, cool. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> That's amazing. And congratulations. I haven't said congratulations. And that is a place where I cried is your engagement videos. Like, yeah. holy moly. Yeah. That was like, oh, oh my God. so amazing. <laughs> Thank you. So beautiful. You know how we've talked before, like so often, I don't think people realize or how, how much healing we are capable of sort of facilitating in our own lives by apologizing to people. Like it's never too late to yeah. apologize to people or to like acknowledge wrongs that you've done. Mm-hmm. And that was, that's one of the um, sort of steps of the 12 step program that I've always kind of puzzled over is that, you know, the step of like acknowledging the wrongdoing that you've done, right? Like acknowledging the the hurt that you've caused. I, I don't know. I have this feeling sometimes where I'm like, do sometimes pe- people maybe don't want to have memories of what you've done reawakened. Is that a self, is that something that we're just doing for ourselves? And I'm just wondering, like in your worldview, in your philosophy, what role do apologies and that idea of like making amends, what does, that, what does that play? I have a lot to say about this. First of all, psychologically, if you are in close relationship with somebody, and I'm talking like familial relationship or deep friendship, and then you experience a cutoff, which is a severing of that relationship, according to like Dr. Murray Bowen, that cutoff actually creates more anxiety in both of your lives than just fighting or being in an uncomfortable relationship. And we think the cutoff quiets the anxiety because the fighting might not be there or the discomfort might not be there on the surface. But at a deep level, cutoff creates an incredibly anxiety-producing situation. And it's wildly unhealthy. But I think it's... So in those situations, redeeming those relationships, I think is vital and important for both of your healing. However... If it is someone who is, I mean, my mom got an amends call from some guy who she went to high school with 
And she couldn't even remember his last name. And he tracked her down and he gave a 45 minute apology. And she got off it feeling sick to her stomach, right? right? Because all of a sudden she had been drugged through all of this drama. And that was not a relationship that was significant for either one of them by the way, but he had done something that he had felt guilty about that, by the way, she didn't remember. So she relived his kind of slight (laughs) through the apology. (laughs) And I was like, okay, this is not okay. So that whole idea to indiscriminately make a list and make amends, (laughs) I think is, is can really have an underbelly that is, is pretty bad. Yeah, I agree. I've, I've always had that feeling like, like sometimes, I think like if somebody invites that conversation with you, that might be a different a different sort of thing. And I think part of what helped your approach reach me was that it wasn't rooted in that sort of like starting off on the back foot by being like, I am ultimately and completely the reaction, the, the emotion guiding me through this is one of shame. Like that yeah. is my primary motivator. I must atone. Right. I need to atone. I'm a worthless worm who has treated everyone so horribly. I mean, not that dramatically, but you know, and like, I grew up with like, you know, my mom is Catholic and I just like, I'm not crazy about the guilt thing. Like I just don't, it doesn't, it doesn't, for me, it's not a good motivator. And you mentioned lightness and joy. And I think that that's something that, I mean, even down to like, the logo of your podcast being this precious little brain with cowboy boots on every time I see it. I think that light, like down to like the color scheme, right. Of like your website is like joy and lightness and the sense of groundedness and like connection to the earth and, and nature. And there's something about it that doesn't have that same sort of feeling of, of darkness, right? Like um, there, there's something about it that feels like you can let, you're letting something go as opposed to like this process of sort of burying yourself underneath shame. And then maybe if you are like compressed enough, mm-hmm. a diamond will come out, you know? Yeah. And I, I think that's, that's such a refreshing, you know, like the, I think that tone is, is that lightness is what keeps so many people coming back to you. Yeah. yeah. I love that so much. I think that, um, it's fascinating as I get to know myself better. So Annie Grace is my given name. It's on my birth certificate. And Annie means grace. So my son is like, oh, it's kind of like grace squared, you know? And I, and I was I, like, you know, I think people are named what they're named. And there's actually some meaning and some thought to that. Not maybe by my mom in the midst of labor, but in, like in the whole universal scheme of all the things. And one of the things that I've been so dumbstruck by is the fact that in the narrative that we have held around drinking too much, we have literally distilled somebody's worthiness to their behavior if they're trying not to drink. So if you are trying not to drink, you are basically, if you don't drink, you're worthy, you're a good person, you're trying hard, you love me, as mm-hmm. the partner. Right. And if you are drinking, you don't love me. You're a bad person. Right. And I I just feel like such a passion about we need to separate behavior and worthiness like full stop. Not even in the drinking na- narrative, but in general, because those yeah. things should have never been tied together. That is not how I believe the world works. Um, yeah. Worthiness is totally separate than behavior. You're reminding me of, I, I know I've talked about her a lot on the podcast before, but Barbara Ehrenreich, the you know writer and social critic who wrote 
Oh, I think the book is called Bright Sided, right. Where she she talks about what she calls the tyranny of cheerfulness. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> and I know there's a sort of a dark side to, to you know, being not being totally aware of all the implications of, of, of what's going on and, and, you know, like toxic sort of optimism. But that's so different than what you're doing. The, the connection that I'm seeing is she talks about her experience with having breast cancer. And she talks about being in the doctor's office waiting room. She's, you know, about to go in for like another round of chemotherapy or something and opens the newspaper. And there's a little advertisement for a teddy bear with like a pink ribbon jumpsuit on. She said that she was like, I just immediately was filled with such indignation because this idea that what I was going through was natural and normal and pretty really offended me. Mm, Yeah. And she goes on to say, though, and, and this this is where I see this sort of connection, is she talks about the language around breast cancer culture. And she says, when we talk about breast cancer as, you know, people are fighting breast cancer and they're in a battle against breast cancer, you know, she's a survivor of breast cancer. She's like, if we think about and turn or, turn that language over in our minds, the implication is that if someone dies of breast cancer, they just weren't, maybe they weren't trying hard enough. Like maybe they didn't fight hard enough, right? It in a way sort of does that same reducing of somebody's value to how they behaved. Like what choices did they make, right? And Mm -hmm. I think that I love that idea of like, disconnecting your worthiness from what you do. Like those are, those are fundamentally different things. Like we aren't good or worthy of survival or worthy of love because we are, because we are or aren't trying hard enough. Right. Mm -hmm. And similarly, like when I was at my sort of, you know, worst with drinking, it wasn't because there was some conscious decision to be bad. That certainly was not it. Right. So yeah, I, I love your reframing of that. I think it's just so refreshing. Sorry, that was very all over the place. No, I landed I, I love it. somehow. <laughs> this is actually kind of a like a heavy question, but I'm just going to frame it as if it's super lighthearted. When Mary nice. and I were on our first date, before I knew who you were, because I didn't, I didn't know who you were when we first went on our Tinder date. But I asked you because I had heard it on a podcast or something. Um, what your BCAD moment was Mm -hmm. like, what was the, what was sort of a pivotal turning point in your life that sort of led you to where you are now? So I'm wondering, Annie, like, and of course I want to distinguish this from like hitting rock bottom or anything like that. I do not mean that at all, but what do you think has been the most pivotal point in your, in your life? Is it maybe like quitting drinking or getting this naked mind off the ground or what would you say has been your BCAD moment? I love that. Um, yeah, I, it's probably going to surprise you because in my journey, I spent six, seven years making rules, beating myself up, really trying the tool that we all try, that we think is the tool, uh, which is blame and shame. And if I can just make myself see how far I've fallen, then I'll change. I actually just did a um, just a live event with like 6,000 people. And I asked them, are some of you feeling like you're waiting for something in order to actually change. And almost everybody said yes, waiting for them to realize how bad it is or their doctor to say something or some version of themselves to come rescue them. Like we're waiting for something to change. And then we are constantly in this dialogue of anger with ourselves. And through that process, I realized that it was a cycle. Like I would I would beat myself up and then I would experience pain and then I'd want to drink again because it was my only tool at that time. It was the only tool I had to relax, to de-stress, to handle all that toxic fuel that I was talking about. And then I would I would drink and then I'd beat myself up more and then 
what do people do who drink, who are in pain? They drink more. And so it was like this cycle. And I could not find a way out of this cycle. It, it's like um, I have a window behind me in my office. And when I open my door, like a fly will come in and the door will be open and the fly will bump up against the glass over and over and over and over. And that's literally what I was doing. I was trying to use force. I was just trying to break through. If I can just make myself see how bad this is, then somehow I'll change. But the thing is, after hearing like thousands and thousands of people's stories, there's always a worse. There's always a worse. Right? <laughs> and so the whole idea of rock bottom is so ridiculous in some ways, because unless you're dead, like there's always a worse. Oh, yeah. And, you know, so so here we are in this train our drinking train. We know the bridge is out ahead. We're starting to see signs that the bridge is out ahead. There's big warning signs flashing by. And we realize this train is accelerating by five miles an hour every hour. And when's the best time to get off that train? Well, immediately. So why don't we do it? And I, I started to think about that question. Well, why not? And for me, I was coming back from a trip to London. I had had such a boozy week. I was up till three, four in the morning drinking. I went into the hotel bar and I ordered, tried to order a mimosa. The waitress said, no, I'm not going to give that to you because if the, the bottle's going to go flat. And so she gave me, she's like, I, you can have a screwdriver, which is like a vodka and orange juice. And this was one of those lines that if I don't drink, you know, hard alcohol first thing in the morning, then I'm still not one of those people. Right. But I had three. <laughs> <laughs> and I get to the airport and I'm journaling and I'm hysterical. Like I'm fully bawling in the airport in this deserted tunnel and, and I'm writing it down and I'm writing down all these like, you know, write the, uh, I just have to see it in black and white. I am an alcoholic. You know, I have a problem with drinking and I'm trying to make myself see it in black and white. If I see it in black and white, then I'm going to do something about it. And this moment was that some other voice entered in and, and said, well, why don't you just find out why? Hmm. And, it was this moment of like, wow, like, huh. And so I made the most radical decision of my whole life, despite drinking two bottles of wine a night, despite the destruction that it was wreaking in my life and my marriage. I said, I'm going to stop trying to stop drinking. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to make a commitment to myself to do two things. I'm going to find out why. And while I find out why, I'm going to let myself off the hook. I'm going to awaken some self-compassion. And I call it curiosity without judgment. I got super oh. curious about my behavior because it didn't make sense anymore. It doesn't make sense that people will you know, lose their children or wreck their cars or destroy the relationships that they love most in the world, their partners, right? Be estranged from like the people that they care about most for alcohol, for this fermented liquid in the glass. It doesn't make sense. And so there has to be something else going on there. There has to be a bigger why. It's not that we're not trying hard enough. It's not that we haven't used enough force or blame or shame. And through this discovery, I mean, I learned everything that you guys have now read in the book is like, there's a lot of whys, but yeah. it wasn't me. Yeah. <laughs> Alcohol just happens to be addictive to human beings. That can come in all sorts of forms and manners and ways. And some of us are better at handling it than others. And you know, but the reality is it isn't just a fraction of the population that's broken. It wasn't that I'm the problem. And one of the things just to go on a little tangent that makes me angriest right now is the fact that the only labeling we have is drink responsibly because wow. that just like the breast cancer example puts, okay, so if, if you don't drink responsibly, if you get addicted to the addictive substance, who is to blame? You, because you're not responsible, which like just infuriates me and compounded with the fact that if we drank collectively responsibly in America, sales of alcohol would go down by 80%. They would all go out of business. Yeah. 
and responsibly is like the CDC guidelines, right? Of, of what they say moderate drinking is, which is, or one drink a day for women, 15 a week for men. They just go out of business. So the fact that that's the label we get, you know, it's a shame inducing label. Somebody I know that we both admire, Alan Carr, in, in his book about quitting, the easy way to quit smoking, says so- something that also comes to mind in what you're saying about drinking responsibly. He says, you know, cigarettes are one of the only things that will kill you when you use it correctly. Like when you use it <laughs> as it is intended to be used and like drink responsibly. Like I remember when I was in college, my mom would say, drink until you feel good and then stop because it's not going to get any better than that. So whenever I'd be hungover or feel like crap, I'd be like, well, damn it, I didn't stop because I, you know, not thinking that's what it's designed to do. That's its right. whole job is to get you to that point and then to think my whole world will fall apart. If, if I don't keep drinking, this feeling is going to go away and I just need to preserve this feeling, yeah. right? I just need to like pin it like a butterfly onto a corkboard and just keep it, you know? And it's just, it's, it's such an insidious thing. And I agree with you. I think putting all of that onus on the drinker is just so it just just continues this shame cycle right and so much of your work is predicated on this idea of just mindfulness like I love that your journey Annie was like sparked by that curiosity that your BCAD moment was that little flame of I'm gonna I'm gonna shift I'm gonna be curious instead of blaming myself yeah no the same sort of feeling with like fat liberation and body liberation and my Mm -hmm. relationship with dieting where I was like I have tried like my whole life to just like shame myself into thinness. Mm -hmm. Like there's a thin person inside of me and she just needs to come (laughs) out. If I just, if I just starve myself enough or I just take this diet pill or if I just, you know, do all of the right things that I'm going to achieve this thing. And it was like, I just was not giving myself compassion or acceptance for just, okay. In a, if I, if I just give myself radical compassion, who, would I be? Mm-hmm. What choices mm-hmm. might I make if I was just very gentle with myself? Yeah. And it was like the, it all started shedding, like all of my, all of the shame, all of the anxiety, just kind of, I felt this real sense of peace, but you don't get that if you just are that fly running into the, yeah. <laughs> the window. Or like if, as with the 6,000 people that you talk to who are all waiting for like something, waiting for something, right? Like, when am I going to be fully actualized? That feeling is echoed and like, there's a sober person inside of me and eventually they're just going to come to the surface. Like, <laughs> right, right, for sure. And be done with this. Yeah. Like, you know, and I would always be like, by the time I'm 30, I'm going to stop doing that. Mm. By the time I'm 35, I'm going to stop doing that. By the time I'm 40, surely this will not still be happening when I'm 40. But yeah, I think there's something about that just, just letting go of that, like, of that, that lack of curiosity about what's motivating you. Cause the story is really simple. If you're just like, I'm, I'm bad now. <laughs> totally. Yeah. I'm bad. My brain is bad. Yep. My body is bad. And we have so much fear around changing that narrative. We feel like, well, well, if I let that go, then I'm, I'm for sure going to be drunk on the side of the road. Right. Like if I let that go, right. then I'm for sure not going to be able to get off the couch. Like we have so much fear. Well, then I'm just going to let myself off the hook. And I like to, to tell people like, okay, you have fear. Your brain's going to give you fear because it's your default. It's yeah. what you've done. It's what all right. society is telling you to change. You have to, you have to, you know, take yourself to task. You have to exercise this like willpower, which don't even get me started on that, but I will go on a small tangent about willpower because I think will, the human will, is one of the things that we collectively as humanity will protect at all costs. When we see a human's will being violated, a child's will being violated, there's nothing 
that makes us viscerally angrier than that. And then you think about, well, what is willpower? We are trying to violate our own will. We are trying to overcome our own will, right? And over time by punishing ourselves. And I think that it's just incredibly frustrating that we're not looking at this and being like, well, if it worked, we wouldn't have this insane diet culture. If it worked, we wouldn't have, you know, almost 100,000 people a year dying from alcohol. Like, like we wouldn't be spending all our money on things that are making us sick and making us, you know, less healthy. Like this, these things wouldn't be happening. And I just... I just feel like it's such an important dialogue to have, but we have so much resistance to it. So what I say is like, well, just, just consider it. Like, just consider it. What if for the next 30 days, you just had to, like every time that you judge yourself, you just had to say, oh, it's only for 30 days. I'm not going to be drunk on the side of the road in the next 30 days. Like just for 30 days, you had to have radical compassion for yourself. You had to err on the side. And if you couldn't do it for yourself, you had to find someone to help you do it for you. And because we can have compassion for other people. I I do an exercise where everybody sort of talks about their moment of regret. And then then they say what they're saying to themselves. And then I say, okay, let's all pick one person and let's tell them what we would tell them. Mm -hmm. And oh my gosh, does it shift. It's so easy for us to say, Mm -hmm. but you're okay, but you're worthy, but I love you, but it's totally fine. But this is like, this doesn't define you. Like it's so easy for us to to focus that outwardly. And so we have to almost personify it and, and allow that. But I say, would your drinking change over 30 days? If, if you could not make yourself wrong, would it change? And everybody's like, yeah, it would, it would go down. Well, why aren't we doing it? Would your relationship with food, would it change? If you couldn't make yourself wrong, would it change? Yeah, it would, because I wouldn't be making radical decisions to starve myself or then to over like do it because I felt so bad and physiologically I need sustenance. Like we wouldn't be doing these things. And so I know when people have resistance to this idea of radical grace and radical compassion, I just say, well, just try it on, you know, just try it on. Totally. I I found when I stopped drinking that, or actually, no, when I was doing the willpower attempt to stop smoking and stop drinking, I remember thinking like life felt like this endless Mobius strip of time that was impossible for me to even fathom. It was like the, the length of my life all of a sudden was this just terrifying, joyless expanse, you know, where it was like, what am I going to do to make, I'm, I'm, I know this sounds really dramatic in some ways I am being dramatic about it, but I was like, what is, what is the purpose of my life without that pleasure? What do I do? Mm-hmm. And then I found when I quit drinking after listening to this naked mind, I was like, a, a lot of it for me was changing how I thought about time, changing how I thought about the day, changing how I thought about like, what am I capable? Uh, am I capable of getting through the next hour of stress without drinking. I'd be like, Mm. oh, well, of course. And then, well, if I've done an hour, I mean, you know, like, and 30 days, what's 30 days? And so, yeah, before I even stopped drinking while I was listening to Annie's audiobook, I signed up for the 30 day alcohol experiment. That was the end of August. And I was going to start the one that started at the beginning of September. And I was like, I quit, I quit drinking already. I don't, I just genuinely don't want this anymore. And that feeling of having alcohol nearby and feeling nothing, I perceive it as being neutral. Mm. And I, that's how I see it now. The yeah. same, like, as you know, the same way that you have tried to kind of change your language around food so that it's not bad food or good food. It's like, it's a neutral, like it has, it has, it offers different nutrition, it offers different values. And like alcohol just offers something I don't need or want right now, mm-hmm, you know, that totally. I'm fortunate enough to not have to 
not have to contend with at all. Totally. Right? Just to just to put a point in it, like in that expanseless indefinite time which everybody can relate to, like what are we waiting for? Are we waiting like one day if I just get 30 days or 60 days or 90 days or a year like something's going to magically change and I'm going to be deemed happy? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> right? Like, like right. where what where is this going? Right. And I <laughs> and the the funny thing about it is the new research in science, it shows us so definitively that it's not 30 days or 90 days or 21 days that create habit or create change. It's positive emotion. And there's nothing more negative than trying not to do something that you want to do. Yes. Right? And right. So, shifting your actual desire through changing your knowledge and changing your emotion, changing your beliefs, then you're not caught up in that anymore. And I think that that is um, just so radically different. I actually encourage people not to stop until they want to like, don't like, don't do anything, but have grace for yourself and learn until you feel good about it. Because if you don't feel good about it, the chance of it lasting. Right. And that's what we see in so many, um, you know, programs is like the chances of it lasting are really, really low. Right. Totally. Anytime it's like that punitive sort of like you have to stop now or you failed. You're right. Yeah. I mean, that's like if, if, if nothing else, we're all just like pleasure seeking. We're all just like seeking some kind of peace and stability and harmony. And that, that flagellating yourself only feels good for so long. Yeah. Yeah. Diet culture wouldn't be a multi-billion dollar industry if, dieting worked, right? Yeah, like, if, yeah. yeah. if it made you feel good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if, it, if it made you feel good, right? If there was if there was an outcome that wasn't, you know, just incredibly painful and shaming. Yeah, I think what's difficult too about, you know, because I really, I've learned so much from you, Annie, and I think the approach that exists in so many different kind of systems of, um, there's just like a lack of tenderness for oneself, like mm -hmm. radical yes, compassion yeah. and diet culture does that. And what I've tried to do and in, in the work <laughs> that I'm doing is like, how can I make this joyful? Like the, the mm -hmm. experience of being able to have peace with your body and your relationship with food is so overwhelmingly <laughs> joyful. If it's always like phrased or, or framed in a way where it's like, negative or shameful or, or like, or sad, or there's some sort some sense of grief of you need to accept that you're never going to be thin. Like, you know, like, yeah. like, you know, it's like, no, just like, let's just accept ourselves as we are. I've just learned so much from you in that you have freedom from diet culture. You have freedom from the, that shame that, you know, alcohol yeah. has, has, has offered you. Yeah. Yeah, let's get rid of the idea that there's a sober person inside you or a thin person inside you, all that crap. But what there is inside you is a person who wildly loves themselves. Like that yeah. is something we are born with that exists. And the only thing that keeps us from that is all of the stuff that society and all of these false paradigms have put in between us, mm -hmm. you know, and you don't have to go further than a baby looking in the mirror for the first time or a toddler to realize like, wow, the enthrallment, the healthy, beautiful enthrallment with who we are and our own being is the naturalist thing in the world. Mm -hmm. It exists completely and wholly. It's not something mm -hmm. we have to learn. Mm -hmm. It is just something we have to like remove the mud from so that we can experience it again. Yeah, it's like that line totally. of yours that I love so much, that, that lyric of yours in Body Love where you say, 
love your body like your mother loved your baby feet. Mm -hmm. Like this idea of having tenderness for yourself and and wonder about yourself the same way that your mother would while she was holding you. Like Mm -hmm. that awe, like that I I kept thinking while I was going through this process of like quitting drinking and starting to run again, where I'd be like, I'm just so lucky to have this body to live in. Like Mm -hmm. that I have this... Mm -hmm this vessel carrying me through this experience more than anything. I, I, I want to be able to experience that n- nakedly. Yeah. Like yeah. I want to know yeah. that, that I'm really experiencing this as it is. And mm. especially for both of us too, like having bipolar disorder, people could have told me all day and all night, like alcohol is the worst thing you can do for yourself. And yet <laughs> like, there's a reason that substance abuse is as astronomically high as it is for people with bipolar disorder and depression is that, it disguises itself, I think, even better maybe than for neurotypical people. It disguises itself mm-hmm. as something that's helping mm-hmm. and something that makes you feel like, you know, that person might not be able to connect to the feeling of being bipolar. But once we're drunk, like we're on the yeah. same, we're on the same <laughs> right. playing field, you know? But like, is that good? Is it good to let it drag me down to that level? So since this Naked Mind came out, there have been so many books since this Naked Mind that have come out that have been written by women about, you know, reassessing one's relationship with alcohol. And I remember for so long there, it just felt like there was no literature about drinking that was like, I'm not saying for women, because like, you know, those books are for everyone, but um, maybe have uh, an, an audience that is mostly women. Like there wasn't a lot of that. It felt like for a long time. And it felt like the only way that women and addiction or alcohol were talked about were in these sort of like tragic, I mean, tragic stories, but also like they were kind of sexy, like girl interrupted Mm. or like, you know what I mean? Or like even I'm thinking about like drinking a love story. Yeah. Like, I mean, even though it is sort of like these tragic, it's these awful stories and these struggles, but it's packaged as being this sort of like film noir, like, totally. you know, the sort of like I struggled with alcohol and it's this, you know, it's, it's, it's almost this kind of alluring thing. Mm. Um, and so I guess, Annie, I'm wondering, like, what do you make of sort of like the, the state of the union right now um, as it pertains to books about alcohol written by women, oh, like, especially since, since your book seems to have like opened the floodgates? Oh, it's such a great question. And I, I see and relate to what you mean. It's funny. I read like one or two of those books and they always left me. Yeah. Same thing. It was almost as if you're kind of watching a train wreck and yeah, it's fun in a weird twisted way to watch a car accident or you all like we're looky loos we're rubbernecking. Right. Mm-hmm. But it was, it was also so those books that I had read were, were so almost disempowering because although the, you know, heroine, did find freedom. There's there's vulnerability that connects us, and then there's vulnerability that we're like, oh gosh, really? Like, I don't, I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> like, like this just gives me an opportunity to kind of judge you, which which is so unfair to say. But that was a feeling, and and I I it awakened feelings in me of kind of better than and like oh at least that wasn't my journey and just just nasty things that I didn't want to feel and so I actually have not read and I'm going to just be really honest with you most of the books I've read very very few of the books that are out there um I have read We Are the Luckiest by Laura McCowan I think it is phenomenal really good and I've read Holly Glenn Whitaker's book um Quit Like a Woman which I also think is very practical and has so many good uh so many good really practical things and is, is really quite empowering but I love that there are so many books that are coming and I love that we all connect with different people, right? Like, and that's the thing about this Naked Mind podcast that 
like those those 500 episodes, like they're people's stories. And by the way, I looked it up. Your story, you guys, is episode number 247. So everybody should go watch your story on my podcast. It is just stories because there's no way that I'm going to connect with everyone. You know, here I am like a mom of three with brown hair living in Colorado, like white woman, like, you know, I'm not going to connect with everyone. So we need all of us. We need all of the different variety. And and I think that's one of the coolest things is that it is, there's not as much like maybe diversity, but there is a lot of variety in the stories. And I think that that's, that's really exciting. Yes, I agree. And I think it came at this perfect, it, this wave of, of, of books, I feel like, and of course, in my mind, like you're Queen Annie. So I'm like, you're, you're responsible for all of this. You, <laughs> you open the door and let people in behind you. Like you sort of showed, because I, I, I find there's like sort of a a similarity in tone in some ways. But anyway, it was really like a moment of reckoning that needed to happen with this, you know, the the like mommy needs her happy juice kind of. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't know how no, to it's, describe it's tr- it. It's true. I mean, that's it. Yeah. It's like live, laugh, love, wine. Like I think that is covering up something so sinister and so sad and so unnecessary. So I like to see this almost like vehement pushback and like all these people who are being so creative about like these alcohol-free bars that are popping up and the fact that it's not like, it's not some lame thing anymore. It's becoming, it's, it's becoming more, I don't know. More mainstream. Like like hipster Brooklyn bars with no alcohol. Like it's starting to happen. And I think it's so much of it is because of people like you who are changing this conversation and making it something fun and exciting and interesting to talk about. And, you know, growing up also as a queer person, so many of our stories are wrapped in tragedy. It's like, I'm not trying to invalidate any of these experiences, but so many of the stories that we can, that we can watch that are about people like us are, you know, about all of the bad things that we already know are possible, right? Mm-hmm. It's not a mystery to any of us that those things are possible. As you right. said, Annie, we're, all, we're on that train. But being able to see, I don't know, a movie like Love, Simon, where it's just like a joyful, happy, queer love story, I think is it shows you that that's possible, that it's possible to exist mm-hmm. that way. And that's what I heard in your voice when listening to your audiobook was like, Oh my god, this is this is possible. Mm-hmm. This sounds like somebody who I would just be friends with who'd like call to chat. Like I connect with this person and that's possible for me. Like mm-hmm. I can do that too. Mm-hmm. Is there something that you feel like you wish you had known once you st- like at, like when you were starting uh this naked mind? Like what what n- kind of new revelations would you inject into <laughs> into your former self? <laughs> I I really wish I would have known a little bit more about what we talked about earlier. Like I I felt like I spent a really long time holding things and making them so much heavier than they need to be. And I think, you know, your point why it is so good about, we don't want it to be toxic positivity. We don't want it to be teddy bears when we're dealing with breast cancer, but equally we want to somehow bring light and grace and, you know, to what is already such a dark conversation. And I think that I just, I held everything so tightly I think because there wasn't a lot of authors out there, because it was really like my book and then a bunch of those kind of memoirs, um, I did feel so much obligation, which I see now is such a false narrative. You know, I really believe invited, not required, but I I wish I would have known that. I also wish I would have known a little bit more about like the psyche of people who were in AA at the time, because what happened 
very practically was that I started to get hate mail. And um, I right. actually got asked not to publish this naked mind because I put it out as a free PDF long before I self-published it. Mm-hmm. And, um, and a group of people banded together and they wanted to get me on like a, a Zoom call and they were going to tell me all the reasons that, you know, I really shouldn't do this. And, you know, it was this whole movement to get me not to publish this book um, among a lot of people with a lot of credentials. And I ended up just shutting it down and like blocking all these people after I came to my senses because I was going to get on this call and I was going to let them tell me all these things. But eventually I came to my senses and I shut it down and I blocked all those people. But I carried this kind of like residual, like, okay, you're not going to like me. I'm not going to like you. Like, like this residual reaction that felt really toxic inside me. And it was actually Laura McCowan and I were speaking and she had found sobriety with AA. And I was like, okay, can you help me understand? Because we had become good friends. I was like, can you help me understand why this reaction happened? And she said, it's just 100% fear. If you're saying there's no such thing as an alcoholic, if you're saying that, you know, actually, like, you can take a 30-day experiment. You don't even have to necessarily get sober. Actually, my first step was I stopped trying to stop drinking. She goes, you're talking to a group of people who have had to kind of fall into so much humility, and I would say humiliation, to where they've had to say, I am an alcoholic, I am willing to be different than everybody I know, I'm willing to be anonymous, which by definition means hide, keep a secret, which is the perfect breeding ground for shame, and I'm willing to do all of these things because I believe that if I have another drink, I cannot drink in safety and it will kill me. Mm-hmm. And so when I understood that, like, oh, I was able to have so much more compassion. And I wish I would have known that all along because I, I think I, you know, you react to how people react to you. And I, I'm just not proud of, I never acted on it, but I'm just not proud of like the, even the feelings inside that, that I carried for a few years because it became yeah. an us and them thing. And it shouldn't, we're all on the same team here. Like that's how I came into it. I was like, okay, everybody's going to be happy about this. This is great. New way to think about this. And, and when they weren't happy, I was like, okay, well, I guess we're setting up camps, you know? (laughs) And and I'm just not proud of that. And I wish I would have known that. I think it's such an interesting kind of side effect of how inclusive conversations about things like alcohol have become. So many voices are welcome and so many people feel that they can connect with people like you very easily. And, you know, there's this feeling like, because there's so much content, I think there's this feeling like, oh my God, this, this, this person I connect with so much and has created something that I connect with. And then wait a second, they just said something that is not completely aligned with everything I am and everything <laughs> I've ever wanted and experienced. This is unacceptable. <laughs> like there's yeah. that feeling of like, I demand, I demand that everything I see be perfectly aligned with everything <laughs> I feel and I've experienced. And there's sort of that I'm feeling like, attacked right now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Like, I think there is this way of of like, when I sort of consume information, it's easy for me to be like, oh, that's not for me. Like, I see who they're, I see who that person is talking to, and they're not really talking to me, or like, I don't really connect with that. But I think for some people, I think it's so personal too. And like you said, they feel attacked. Mm -hmm. And the way I kind of, you know, understand AA after reading your work, and, and, you know, like there's an article that came out in the Atlantic that like really Mm -hmm. lambasted AA. And people had a really negative reaction to it. And I feel like like a whole generation of men, I think, because I, I, I feel like it was something sort of built for and tailored to that kind of yeah. like the greatest generation's kind of experience, you know, with alcohol, where that I think was the language that they spoke. Like, I think that that was sort of how you kind of, and I think for a lot of people too, they feel like 
their communities or their families were like built by people who had been through AA and Mm -hmm. they feel like the ground is shifting underneath them. Like if that's not true, you know, what's true. Right. And I I was going to ask, and even though I know, I mean, you just said that that's not something you're proud of and you probably don't want to address, but do you find that that's the, the kind of drinking myth that you get the most pushback on? Like, is that what people seem the most reluctant to believe is this idea that, they're not alcoholics or like that they don't need to identify themselves as alcoholics or where do you sort of see the most resistance from people? It's a great question. So I think that interestingly, no, because for one thing, like you said, the narrative has changed. I mean, we are in a time where things can change drastically in a very short amount of time. And it's been almost eight years for me. And since 2015, we're in 2022. What is that? Like seven years, Mm -hmm. five, seven years. I'm not good at math. Um, The narrative has changed so drastically that that is not where I get the pushback. I think where I get pushback is only with this idea of, letting yourself off the hook and having grace for yourself. Mm. That is the least palatable thing to people. It is the thing that people cannot handle. They think, Mm. well, if I do that, then going to hell in a handbasket because that, you know, like we just, it's so deeply ingrained inside of us. And, you know, we have to spend so much time deconstructing that because I do believe that like grace and compassion and then learning something new to feel something new, like that's it. That's, that's, That's all of this naked mind in five words. And, and I think that that is the hardest thing for people to accept. It's like grace and compassion. In your, it's like, lady, you're in bootstraps country. Yeah. I don't know if you know this. But <laughs> around here, we like to give ourselves lashes. And that's just yep. the only way it works. Yeah. What is, what's next for this Naked Mind, Annie? What are some exciting things on the horizon that you are at liberty to tell us about? Oh, yay. Um, Well, first of all, I just want to circle back to one of your earlier questions, just to kind of put a pin in this conversation we were having about women. Because one of the things that I think we women need to know is that our nature to gather and talk and, you know, even if you take the negativity out of the word gossip, but discuss and evaluate and, you know, have uh, these feelings related, like conversations and all of the things that we do, that exists without wine and it exists better without wine. Mm-hmm. And so the, the fact that those two things have been coupled, and I remember this in my own journey, like if you're having a hard time, don't worry, I'm bringing over a bottle of wine. You know, if you're upset, don't worry, we've got the wine. Don't worry, we're just going to drink through this. And like, but but that that natural thing that we women have to put our arms around each other, to show up for each other, to be in community with each other, like that exists and that needs to be nurtured, you know? And I think we just need to decouple those things. And and for so many people, they're so afraid of losing that if they stop drinking because their whole group is drinking. But what I've noticed is that if you show up in that group, but you still show up and you're still there and you're still present and you're not drinking, it is such a gift for everybody in that group. Doesn't mean everybody's going to like put down the bottle tomorrow, but it also means that you are just showing that, oh, these two things, they're not the same. These yeah, two things right. exist totally separately. There's something so powerful about that. I totally, totally agree. Like agree. modeling, like, hey, look, this is possible. Yeah. Right? Like I mean, when you saw totally. Kim Selling wearing a crop top and you're yeah. like, you're not allowed to do that. Oh, wait. Like, you're fat. You can't wear a crop top. What are you doing? Yeah. <laughs> We're not allowed to do that. Yeah. <laughs> Don't you know? Well, <laughs> about alcohol, it's anathema. But then you're like, 
oh, oh, okay. They're having fun. They're enjoying this. All right. It is possible. Totally. I mean, like, and being able to go to a bar and be like, oh, a shot's for everybody. Hey, we're going to do, um, we're going to do some um, fose. Yeah. Fose shot. Like we did that. We had that on our, um, we had an engagement party and, I brought all of my, you know, I invited all of my old friends, which are my drinking buddies. I mean, they're just like every night we were faced. Like, I mean, I don't, I, there was rarely a time that we were sober together, but I was like, you know what, this is, these were my friends and we're going to be friends no matter what. And, but there was a point at the, I saw, you know, they were like, we're going to get a round of tequila, a round of tequila, you know, and kept asking us and two for you. We're going to do our Fosé shots, Uh you know, and it was just really to be able to participate and also know that like we're not going to be drunk. It was also also kind of fun to connect with you about like, you know, when when somebody was repeating the same story loudly for like the third or fourth time to look over at Mary and be like, oh, my God, like there was something really bond, like bonding about it. It was really nice. Yes. Did you have a close group of friends that you, you know, would drink with? Did your relationship with them change? Uh, it's funny. We were we were talking about this recently because a uh, close group of friends, like we, five of us, we text every single day. Um, we were in each other's weddings. We met in college, like just still so close. I'm so blessed to have such a tight, close group of friendships. And yes, we always drank together. And I forget how it came up, but one of them wrote in the chat, uh, oh, I remember because we hired a new team member. And uh, during her onboarding, her boss was like, just so you know, you're going to accidentally stop drinking working here. You're not going to mean to. It's just going to happen because it happens to everybody because I have no need for anybody to be sober working for me. Right. So I don't I don't go look for sober people. And so we were joking about that. And I was I was telling my friends in the chat and and they all responded like, well, yeah, that happened to me, too, just knowing you. And I was just like, oh, that's true. Like when wait, we went for like a cabin trip recently and we went to a pink concert and yeah, nobody was drinking. And, and it was, it was really cool. And I have no expectations around that. Like that was so not true for me, but now over the years, things have just shifted. And it's not that they never drink, but they drink so much less than they used to. And just very happily, very naturally. And not that that should ever be an expectation, but I just do feel really, really lucky. I also have friends who honestly, drinking was the only thing that we had. Yeah, that was it. There was nothing yeah. else. And a few times of hanging out with them without drinking, like I just had to make the very self-compassionate decision to know that that friendship was not something that was serving me anymore. And that's hard. That's tough. And you don't have to do it in this huge breakup way. Gosh, that's the worst. But like, yeah. it's just really a allowing it to, to, you know, things don't have to necessarily be forever. And that's okay too, yeah. because it's much worse to hang out with somebody who's, you know, making you totally nuts because they're, you know, you can't relate anymore. You know, yeah. they were only fun or entertaining or smart when you were drunk too. And right. and that's just the reality of some friendships, unfortunately. But and I'm I'm very curious. I hope this isn't too invasive of a question, but are there times when you are not tempted, but where you're ever like, oh, I wish I I wish I could access this thing that I used to be able to access. Do you mm. ever have moments like that where you're like oh, I wish that I could have had a better relationship with with alcohol or something. There's two ways that I think I should talk about this. The first way is that in the first year, every first felt very tenuous for me. So I remember um, the first wedding I went to, it was my cousins, Lucy, and her partner, Tracy. And we went there and it was like, my cousin Lucy is Jewish. So they were breaking the glass, the wine glass, and they were talking about wine in the ceremony. And I'm sitting here in the audience thinking, wow, well, 
this can't be that bad if it's like this 2000 year old tradition. And so I ended up going to the bar and getting uh, non-alcoholic beer, which I'd never done before. But I was like, yeah, I'm just going to like see how this makes me feel because I feel outside of things right now. And I remember holding it and it felt so incongruent to me because I knew everybody else could think it was a beer. And, and so I felt really then doubly uncomfortable. So I ended up pouring that out and just getting a Shirley Temple. And then I felt much more in line with myself. But, but it was really weird. And I actually did YouTube videos. I was doing YouTube at the time. So I have a video from like the day before and the morning after and and just just working through that in raw real time because every first was weird every first was weird but the second time you did anything it was like nothing non issue first all inclusive vacation i was really hung up on the fact that i was overpaying for that dang vacation oh right <laughs> yeah oh my god was that trip to mexico oh my god <laughs> there was, it was like so frustrating there was like a tequila buffet at the breakfast bar. Yeah. Anyway, it, it, was, it was a lot. Sorry, but yeah, those were. <laughs> sorry to interrupt. It was a lot. <laughs> and, and so all of those things, like I, I just had to, instead of ignoring them, I just had to really look at it and be like, okay, well, what is the real cost if I decide to drink on this vacation? Right. You know, what is the cost to my health? What is the cost to tomorrow? What is the cost to the next day? And when I would really go into those areas of discomfort rather than ignore them, they let go, you know, naturally. But I think the first are, are tough. Um, and then I also think that I was really fortunate and I feel uncomfortable recommending that people do this, although I do kind of recommend that people do it in my book, is that I did what this was the original alcohol experiment. I locked myself in a room and I got totally shit faced by myself in front of my iPhone. And I recorded the whole thing. You can, on the free alcohol experiment, you can see it on day 28. I share like a, it's like four hours of footage and I just condensed it down to 28 minutes. I mean, 16 minutes. I couldn't even look at it for years and years. But like for me, all the things that alcohol was fun, like I just had these beliefs and it was right after St. Patrick's Day. My first St. Patrick's Day, everybody's drinking their green beer. I'm looking around at all my friends and I'm thinking, all right, maybe I overreacted. <laughs> maybe I, I went too far here. Like I can drink like sometimes, like this is not that big of a deal. And I said, well, you know what I'm going to do? Because I had been very much in this like hypothesis experiment, you know, tested on myself mode. I was like, you know what? I'm just going to get drunk by myself. Not at St. Patrick's Day, not when all my friends are together, not when we're already having fun, not on a vacation that's already going to be fun, not in a concert, not in any sort of situation, just by myself. Mm -hmm. And when I did that, like the truth of how alcohol makes you feel it's not actually great. Yeah. Like I felt dizzy. I felt like a little bit like, like the world was kind of like sh coming in at the edges a little bit. Mm -hmm. And I talked to the video camera about how I felt the whole time. And you could see the light going out of my eyes. It's, it's really painful to watch people on my team. They're like, Oh God, don't watch that so bad. You don't even want to see any in that state. Started snapping at my kids. I started snapping at my dog. Mm -hmm. I, I went from like this, you know, pretty like, happy, playful person to just like kind of a bitch. And it was horrible. And I was like, no, no, that's, that's the final nail in the coffin. I am done because I had separated completely all of those things that we're talking about. We get it intertwined in our memories, in our heads, because we haven't ever done the things without booze. So yeah. of course they're intertwined. But the truth is that booze by itself, it didn't have anything for me. So, so no, I, I was never tempted to drink, but still, those firsts were hard to navigate because it was it was just the first time. Right. Totally. Wow. 
And Thank that, you that's it's like sharing. it's like the the naked version of drinking. It's like what does it look like Ooh. when you strip it of all Ooh. the foundations? And one yeah. uh, one anecdote that I've heard you share that I just love is when you were talking about being on a like at, on a business trip and being like, oh, I'm not drinking and this sucks. And you know your husband yeah. being like, you're on you're on a work trip, of course it sucks. <laughs> <laughs> like this is like you don't like anything you're doing right now. You don't like your colleagues. You don't like the city you're in. You don't like the fact that you're up too late. Everybody there pisses you off in real life because they're all like not carrying their ball, like their their weight. And then you're telling me you're not having fun with this group of people. They're not your friends. And I was like, yeah. oh my gosh. Yeah, I'm just going to go back to my hotel room and watch True Blood. <laughs> I I think that's such an important part of it too cuz I we were Wyatt had just quit drinking and we were like supposed to go to LA like the next week or the week after and we were going to see my friends show and I was kind of already dealing with like having quit smoking. So I was like grieving, not being able to smoke cigarettes. And when we went to the show, I was like, well, I have to have something in my hand, you know, and Wyatt had assured me that it was the, you know, they were fine with me, you know, drinking. So like I got, I think I got a beer and then Wyatt got a Red Bull. And I remember just seeing how, easy it was it was just like why it was like still having a great time like enjoyed the show and like I don't even think I finished my beer it like got warm and like I, you know but it was that that moment of like oh there are so many different ways to experience <laughs> like uh, experiences like to have yeah. drinking isn't the focal point of it you know it, you're going to a whiskey tasting or something sure but you know <laughs> but even that like you are hopefully, you know, typically they're with friends, you know? Yeah. I went to a really fancy wine tasting and I just spit it all back out. And like, they're like, that was a $15,000 bottle of wine. I was like, well, I don't want to get drunk, but like, and I don't think it tastes all that good, but whatever. I'm here. Somebody bought me a ticket. It's a work thing, you know, because I wasn't going to hold it like all precious and make all these rules around it either. (laughs) All of the, all the pageantry, all the rituals. Yeah. Right. Like, you can never let it pass your lips. You will, you know, ignite immediately. And and I understand if that's what some people feel like needs to keep them safe or whatever. But like that, that just wasn't my experience. Like I've held it very loosely. I don't even say like, I'm sober or anything. I just say I drink as much as I want whenever I want. Just it's been almost eight years now. Like I just have not wanted to, you know, have a drink. And and that for me feels freeing because back to what we were talking about way before is with that, like, what are you waiting 21 days, 30 days? Like, when are you going to know you're successful with that? Like when you're dead, is that when you're going to know? That's when you're going to know because like if you're making a forever promise to yourself about anything, you're not going to know you're successful until you're not here anymore. Yeah, totally. Annie, I know <laughs> you we've took, taken you so much us, of your time. I cannot believe how long you've let us You're just the best. You. Oh, I love this. I could do this for so – this is so fun for me. I I honestly – I feel like we should, that I could do this forever. This is awesome. <laughs> so I mean, I feel like officially our podcast is no longer a dog and pony show. Yeah. This is now the big time. <laughs> now we're refined. Yes, we are refined. You've refined us. <laughs> yes. thank you so very much annie and um yeah we'd love we'll do we'll do this again yeah 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 that's awesome (laughs) all right thanks so much 
please don't forget to check out This Naked Mind companion app in the App Store on Google Play or online at thisnakedmindapp.com. More than 700 Q&A videos, the alcohol experiment, our global community, and so much more. Private, off social media, and free. All in one place and conveniently tucked right in your back pocket. I really hope to see you there. Thisnakedmindapp.com. And as always, rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast as it truly helps the message reach somebody who might need to hear it today.